Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Alex Edelman, who is a New York-based London file comedian. He likes to go to the UK and perform there and he's very popular there, but he's also coming regularly to Australia for the Melbourne Festival, which is where I get to see and talk to him the most. And this is a conversation I had with him in the lobby of a hotel, there's a little cafe there. I'm afraid that means there's a bit of ambient noise if that's something that you are against. This week's episode may not be for you. It doesn't bother me when I hear a bit of the world happening around a podcast, but I know that it bothers some people. I've tried to edit it down a little bit, uh, but that what, what it sounds like is what it sounds like. So if that's not to your taste, maybe next week's episode. Thank you, everybody who's been subscribing on Patreon. Oh, my God, it's fantastic. You cover the tea costs and the hosting costs. Make my life so much easier so that this podcast doesn't cost me money to produce and I can just keep doing it in a relaxed way without stressing out about whether I can even afford to do it. Thank you so much everybody who's emailed me in at alicerfraser at gmail.com, people who liked my show at Melbourne. If you're in Sydney uh, or New Zealand or Edinburgh, I'll be over there uh, in August. Tickets are already on sale for Edinburgh, tickets are on sale for Sydney, tickets are on sale for New Zealand. If you have friends there, send them. Otherwise, just keep listening. I love having you. I love having tea with people. I love having these conversations. This is a real delight. You're having tea with Alice. So you're drinking hot chocolate and I'm drinking green tea. You're choking on hot chocolate. You died. I'm choking on the top. died doing what he loved. Uh, and I'm Draining having up, green tea uh, very fancily at the West Inn in Melbourne. And inevitably, as always happens when I record in a public place, the people behind me have decided to start talking more loudly than they were when we arrived. Uh, but that's, that's okay. <laughs> Nobody minds a bit of ambiance. Um, it's the powder. It's the powder that's on top that's ah. it's getting you. Um, now it's all over me. Good. It's fine. <laughs> a disastrous start to the podcast. It's all right. We can cut, we can cut all of this out. I'm no, having... no, no. Leave it in. It's the in no frills, sort of behind. Um, behind the scenes. Yeah. Comedians choking on coffee in cars. Comedians, co- yeah. Comedians <laughs> having fatal heart attacks because of their their coffee. And there's you pouring your tea. I am pouring tea. So um, great introduction. My guest is Alex. Oh my Edelman. god! I have, I got. Hot chocolate powder all over the. That's all right. It'll make it better. All over the table. Make the recording better. I'm sure that the uh, listener can hear that they're now covered in hot chocolate powder. Oh my god. Uh, How's your festival been? How's it all been? It's been amazing. I I love this festival so much. My favorite festival. Yeah. More than Edinburgh. More than anything else. Why? What about it? You don't have to have an answer. Um. Could just be the vibe. Yeah. I mean that's. I mean, for an international, they take really good care of you. They take really good care of you. They give you a lot of um, uh, give you a lot of freedom, and it's basically like summer camp in Australia. You go somewhere for a month and do comedy, and you just have the most brilliant time, and you do brilliant shows or brilliant audiences, and um, and they're they're pretty they're pretty intense shows. They're like. I mean, very rarely do internationals not sell well because they curate us so carefully. Yeah. So if you're, if we're here, we can sort of back up the 
reviews that we get and uh, the nature of the curation of the Melbourne Comedy Festival when it comes to international so any for the listener who doesn't know any Australian act can enter uh, there's a level of curation if you get a festival managed venue that's sort of a vote of confidence yeah um, 100%. But otherwise, there's no 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 quality control. You can just enter if you pay your 500 bucks for Joe. But they bring it's illegal to come to Melbourne as an international act unless you're in the festival. Uh, they can refuse your visa. So the international acts are hugely curated. Yeah, I mean there are a few indie guys becoming, who are great. Yeah, but, yeah very but they've got visas for other reasons. So you can't get Do a they? performer visa if you're not coming through Melbourne. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, it, it, to the point where they yeah they can keep you out of the country uh, if they don't like you. Marcus um, Bergman is do, is here doing a uh, doing doing a show, but it must be sort of like with the festival's tacit approval. Yeah, it's if they like you, but then they curate everyone else incredibly heavily. Um, I mean, that's a good thing. It gives it gives the maintains a level at the festival, and also they're really big supporters of like. You know, developing comedy communities in Asian and European countries, and it's great to see these comics from like Igor Mirson from Russia is very good. You know, he's on at seven fifteen every day, and so uh, I've seen the show. And uh, you know, like it's amazing to think that there's a guy out there with an hour who's Russian, and then there are some guys who are doing the hour in Chinese or. Sami Shah is pretty amazing for that. Yeah. Pakistani. Pakistani. Yeah. He decided, He's been living here for a long time, hasn't he? Well, he started. He decided to be a comedian. He was just a comedy oh, fan, and so he decided he wanted to do it. And having no other knowledge of what comedy was, he just booked a 300-seat venue and uh, did an hour <laughs> uh, really? straight off the bat. And then he was working for a satirical news program. He had a very young daughter at that point, an infant daughter, and he started getting death threats. So he applied for a visa over here and got the one that lets you work in a... You can come over if you are based in a country town for about three years. So he lived in rural Perth, rural Western Australia, for three years. And drove in to do sets, huh? Drove in to do sets Good in for Perth, him. and now he's moved to Melbourne and is finally hitting his stride. Oh, great. So, wow. Has he been a guest on the podcast? Uh, he has, yeah. He's, he's a great guest. I'd like to have him back on that, actually. Oh, good. He's, inevit- he's one of those people who's just inevitably going to be successful. There are just so many... Like, and there's just so many brilliant things I get to see here that I wouldn't really see anywhere else because also it's, you know, hard, I think, for Australian acts to get out of Australia. It is. It's um, a massive financial investment. Oh, yeah, to get anywhere, to go to U.S. or to go to the U.K., especially to go to the U.S. So I'm rarely exposed to these kind of internationals, so I'm really sad it's ending. I always get really bummed when a festival like this sort of draws to a close. I never get used to saying goodbye. Um... I've done it for three Edinburgh Fringes and two, um, Mel- and I guess now two Melbourne Comedy Festivals, and it's just a really sad, really sad thing. But uh, you well, know, it's this idea. I once had an idea for a science fiction novel based on communities and countries, like in, in the absence of stress about travel. So whatever the technology would posit, ease of travel, absolute ease of travel you would create communities that were not based on geography, but were based on the mind. I think part of that is a good thing. So you'd have like football city or, and, and that's what happens here, which is we have comedy city for 
one month in Melbourne, for one month in Edinburgh, for three weeks in Adelaide. You have... I think the rarity of it, not to kibosh your great science fiction idea, <laughs> I think the rarity of this festival yeah. sort of makes it... Uh, yeah. I think oh, it God, sort of year round would be intolerable and obnoxious. Comedians are horrible. <laughs> yeah, comedians are horrible people. I just think, like... Um, I don't know. I always miss... I always miss... Uh, I find the company of comedians, especially international comedians, to be really interesting. So, um, like, David O'Doherty is one of my favorite comics from when I was a kid, when I was starting out in comedy. And, you know, he's at this festival, and we spent a lot of time together and played some football. And Rose Matafeo, who's from New Zealand, is, I think, a really brilliant new act. And, like, same with... Uh, you know Penny Greeno? Yeah, Penny Greenhouse is really. She's been on the podcast too. She's great. Like I, like I would never have seen them. Where would I? Where the fuck would I have seen Rose or Penny? You know, so far at least. So also, when you see new comedians, sort of realize what's sort of on the cutting edge, and so even if they're not the most developed yet, and you see old comedians or or hack comedians in other countries, like like we've mentioned someone who I actually think is kind of quite hacky but um, but I mean it's a really good uh, metric for what what is just being very commonly talked about so you either decide not to talk about it or try to talk about it better than the other than the international hacks so you say um, you know that's these festivals are really useful for finding out what's new and what's modern and what's interesting and you get a chance to do a whole bunch of different things like I did Simon Munnery's film school he's insisted it's pronounced film film school and it's great it's what a great opportunity to do something that uh, you know a comedy legend is putting together in your and I did the great debate in front of Barry Humphreys I mean that's a once in a lifetime experience so you can go on TV a few times you go on the radio a few times and you know Walk down the. I, I, there hasn't been a single day I've walked down the street and someone hasn't come up to me and said they've seen the show. It's a really cool thing. It's very nice. I'm sure you've gone through the same thing. People, people coming up. To yeah, you. on a smaller scale, I have had people who come back from every year, which is really nice. Yeah. Uh, I'm starting to get that thing where I've, this is my third Melbourne, and and yeah, yeah, people now come to you. They like you, and they like what you do, and you have a thing that they like. That's right. Well, I tried to get into your show, and it's sold out. So that's it. That's a shame. It's sold out. You just tell me what night you want a ticket, man, or tomorrow night, which is the like 6 p.m. big room. Where when is that? That's at the Met Shop at 6 p.m. Okay, yeah, that I can make. Uh, and then what it's like a lot bigger room yeah, <laughs> I'm good. really worried good, about I'll it. be there I'll be there you'll be fine uh, everyone who adds these extra shows in big rooms they're always fine they're okay it's, it's a very stressful thing to do yeah I can I can absolutely imagine that it is uh, can very much imagine that it is so um, uh, what shall we talk about yeah you said you had an idea about about age yeah I mean it's weird because my first show was called Millennial my second show is called Everything Handed to You. So a lot of people think that my shows have to do with, uh, like, big societal ideas like privilege and stuff, when in reality it's just about, you know. I, I have a friend named Elon Gold, who's a really good L.A. comedian. He says that a comedy special should be a snapshot of your life. It should be like a Facebook page. It tells an audience everything about you. Um, on a basic level and gets into it in a funny way so when you leave they sort of have a more complete picture of who you are so I try to do that in my hours which is that I try to take a snapshot of who I am and get into it and identify a common theme that's maybe an unexplored part of my identity 
And so there's a lot of my show about being a Jew because that's important to me. And have you seen my show yet this year? Not yeah. this year. <laughs> so, so yeah, you should come. Uh, but I will the, definitely come. You're one of my favorite acts. You haven't come this no, okay. What have I gave, what have I spent the rest of the podcast giving you like a really hard time for not having seen the show? <laughs> um the, I mean it's about it's sort of about being a young traveling Jew. And so the funny thing is the aspect a lot of people have kind of seized on is the age. Because I think people really seem obsessed with with the idea of youth and the idea of aging and uh, increasingly the idea of generations. Mm. So um, it's very weird and difficult to uh, to have, and, and frustrating to have to sort of fit into people's idea of what a young person is or what a young person should be, um, especially in countries where class is an issue, like the UK. Um, and also find that people, even though I think that the term like millennial is kind of a BS term or word, um, I find myself like super keenly interested in the way that people talk about young people and think about young people because I think it has a real life impact, and not just artistically but politically and um, commercially in terms of how we're spoken to and advertised at and engaged with on a um, institutional level. Well, the reality is you respond to the stimulus that you're given. If somebody approaches you on the bus with open hands and a smile, you're much less likely to... I mean, it'll dictate your response compared with if they come at you aggressively, and that's a very simplistic way of, of looking at it. But the whole world is coming at you in a, with a particular attitude from every angle and in every medium. Yeah, I think it's really condescending, actually. I think we're really being condescended to, and I think that the sort of youth culture that's being rewarded with more platform is kind of like incredibly juvenile yeah really juvenile and kind of like functionally illiterate and uh, and like I feel really old saying that I feel like because I'm 27 now I just turned 27 so so maybe I'm no longer entitled to talk about what it means to be like a young person but at least for like people in my generation I still find like the like the the stuff that aimed at that's aimed at us like incredibly frustrating and really you know like sort of calculatedly dumb and I see very smart people doing like very dumb content and I see smart young people consuming like very dumb content and and it really it really bugs me like it really seems so strange to me that like young people are out there like using like uh, and I don't want to marginalize like people who use slang or, or something like that or like a specific cultural subset it seems to be mostly like a like a, a hip hop offshoot but it doesn't seem to me to be any, like any sort of literate person's culture and like uh, it's, it's a really interesting I have a joke in my show at the moment about the fact that we're not genetically any different from the people who uh, would have had slaves in their houses and beaten their wives. We're not, we're not in our constitution any different from. What do you mean? Ge- what do you mean genetically different? As in our bodies and our minds are not structurally, other than nutrition, we're not different species. No, but our standards have moved. 
It's not as a move, but the point is that you didn't nor are we anyway. With, like dominance issues and hierarchy issues and class issues and stuff. I do. I think we are absolutely, and we've shifted those standards. But there's a lot of them still in place. But my point really was that we're also no different from, you know, Keats and Shelley and and Shakespeare and all of the people the who were able to absorb as much. Yes, we are. I think we are. How so? I think we've become. Um, I think the the jump in actual literacy has become so. Um, we've we've both raised and lowered the standards for what for what literate is. So now anyone who can uh, read is now reads sort of as long as they can see words and understand what they mean. That's literacy. But back then it used to be. You had to have this full grasp on what everything meant. And uh, you were expected to sort of have this sort of encompassing vocabulary. And, I mean, I get really frustrated when people say that, like, oh, young people aren't educated the way that they used to. I really think that's not true. I think we're the most educated generation. I just see the wrong aspects of, like... uh, like click, like clickbait culture, and like sh- and like short form journalism, and all the stuff that's sort of driven towards us is like very. I, I don't think that we need like a return to Keats and Shelley and or Shakespeare and stuff like that. I just would love to see more interesting and dynamic stories and and approaches being rewarded as opposed to. Yeah, there was a point at which literacy meant having read everything that had ever been written. And that was a yeah, time at which at least you having could, a command you could have that access. And now it's so overwhelming and the response to that is simplification, oversimplification. The response to the fact that there's an overwhelming mass of data and it cannot be absorbed. Oh yeah, obviously. Like I mean the amount of the amount of stuff contained and generated by the internet is so outsized that, you know I read some insane statistic that like the output of the internet every day is like equal to like all of human history beforehand times a certain number, something something lunacy like that, because no, obviously, like one, you know, one one byte is a page, and one kilobyte is like a thousand, obviously a thousand pages. One megabyte is like a million, like some, like it's something, it's something absolutely insane, and like one gigabyte is like the size of like the biggest library in the world. Mm. So. Yeah, it's hard to fathom that. But, but I'm not talking about, like, absorption of information or the amount of information out there. I'm just talking about, like, what's selectively aimed at at young people and the way that people try to engage with young people is, like, so artificial. There's no there's no authenticity in the, in the way that people sort of speak to us. And, uh, and I think this sort of idea that we're entitled and narcissistic has really hurt the stuff that's for us. Like, I think people aim entitled narcissistic content at young people who they think of as entitled narcissistic. Do you know what I mean? Like, There's a um, really interesting documentary, I don't think it's available in Australia, but you can get it in the UK, called The Century of the Self, talking about the lockstep of uh, The Century of the Self, and it's, it talks about the lockstep of marketing and psych- psychotherapy. So the invention of the idea of a self that needed to be actualized, this this uh, psychological idea that you had a, a self, 
that didn't exist unless you expressed it and and the lockstep with marketing that you needed to express it with the things that you bought or the things that you wore or the things that you did the things that you consumed uh, were an expression of your your identity rather than your identity just existing or, or being itself and I do and that that kind of the movement of the two things weirdly Freud Freud's like cousins what do you mean, and nieces like, what do you mean like defining yourself in terms of like your your possessions and stuff is that what they're just even the idea of having a self that need that didn't exist properly or could be fulfilled or unfulfilled yeah rather than just existing as it was or in reference to the people around you it was some something inside you that needed to be a needed to be expressed to feel good or to and if it was not expressed would damage you yeah so if you were not yourself in the right way you would become damaged psychologically and that that in order to express that self you needed to articulate it in a public way and the only way to do that was by buying things that identified you that were expressions of your identity so that the that marketing and psychotherapy went in lockstep to the point where if you weren't wearing the clothes that were the clothes that you should wear you were not yourself and were somehow could be damaged by that repression and all of that stuff which I think is a really legitimate medical and psychological theory became completely inextricable from marketing and capitalism. It's a really interesting documentary. It's well, called The Century of the Self. Century of the Self. And it's weirdly Freudian, Freud's family, like all of his nieces and nephews, all went into marketing. Well, yeah, I mean, that Emma Emma, and all those... Yeah, that's right. His um, Freud's family has kind of become prominent intellectuals in the UK and stuff like that, but... I just don't know how, um, I don't know how there's any way back for, uh, in terms of, like, generalize, yes, okay, um, I don't know, let me, let me, let me get it. No, no, my, uh, Patreon pays for the tea for my guests. Oh, really? Okay. It's the, it's the great thing about this podcast. Oh, good, thank you, thank you, listeners. Thank you. Um, I just think that there's no way back for... Uh, also, we've, we've now sort of reached a point where I think intellectualism scares us. Yeah. Um, I think it's really uh, started to intimidate people. Uh, and I, I, don't, I don't see it at all in my own life, but I just see it other than... Other in terms of, like, voting. Like, intellectual was used as, like, a slur against John Kerry. They were, like, always an intellectual... Even Obama, they'd be like, oh, he's just a... Just a professor. He's an ideas man. The idea that someone's a regular guy and that's why you'd vote for him is like, I don't want to vote for a regular guy. I want someone who's so much better than me. Yeah, why would you Why would you want to be led by somebody who's operating? I mean, gut instinct, that idea as a, as a valid reason for making a choice yeah. just feels right. It's just a terrible reason to make any choice. I think... I think uh, I don't know how Obama's done. I don't really. I don't really. Uh, I've become very disillusioned with uh, with politics. Even though I'm still, I, I'm still pretty engaged. I'm involved with this thing called Run for America, which is a friend of mine, David Burstein's. This really valuable um, cause that um, finds entrepreneurs and 
interesting academic young people and gets them to run for office in winnable districts. It's a bipartisan thing. And uh, so they've gotten uh, quite a few. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. No, no problem. And so they've gotten quite a few um, sharp young folks who have. Um, no problem. No problem. Thank you. Sorry, I feel like I made her feel bad. She surprised me. The waitress just surprised me. I was like, huh. yeah. Well, this is the nature of doing it in a public place. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so they find sharp young people to run for office in districts where um, they think there's a group of young people who haven't really been spoken for. And, uh, and in many districts, that is the case, actually, where like young people increasingly aren't aren't being uh, represented because the people who vote are old people and people who pay license payer fees in in the UK are old people so like like really the voice of younger voters or younger citizens is really not being heard or represented because because they don't vote as much it's interesting in Australia we have compulsory voting yeah and this is where your your kind of idea plays in a lot which is that so it how young are younger people, people represented? Should in be represented strongly in, in in Australia, but there is this cultural thing, and you'll see it in comedians a lot. You'll see the shows, and, and I think comedians are a very good measure of society. You'll see the shows that are sort of I don't know how to be an adult shows. This idea of helplessness in the face of your own I your own adulthood. We are now the like I'm nearly thirty, and I am. The generation. This is the generation that does stuff. Have you seen Tom Ballard's shows at the festival? Yeah. Both of Tom Ballard's shows are excellent examples of um, of how comedy can inform its society and how comedy can seriously reflect its um, society. And like, uh, I'm not doing a good job articulating it, but. Well, he got nominated for the Barry, so yeah. it's obviously a very And for both shows, show for, for his body shows. of work, yeah. It's so a fantastic thing. He's amazing. He's one of the best comedians. I would be, uh, and I love all of the other nominees. Every single other nominee is a friend of mine and a great, great performer. But if he didn't win, I'd be furious. Just because uh, yeah. I think... I think him for the Barry and Zoe Koomsma for, for the, the Gibbo. For the will be will be the... That would be my, my ideal. Those are my outcome. predictions, but um, and I'd be happy for any of the literally any of the other nominees. But I think what Tom has done is something extraordinary, which is he's done a show about refugees and he's made it um, funny. It's genuinely heroic. It's the gold standard for what comedy can achieve, uh, and it's it doesn't say uh, he does make a few jokes like I'm a young dickhead talking about this, but. But just to um, well, take just yourself just seriously in an intellectual way, yeah. A status play. I have, I've had that before where people say, oh, you shouldn't apologize from stage. And if I don't apologize or like look like I'm wrestling with my ideas on stage, it's basically me just telling people what to think. So him saying, I'm just a young dickhead, is, I think is just probably a status Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just making, I mean, he's just making a joke, and he does it... Uh, he does it sort of for like for me it's really like I'm a young dickhead and now here's an hour of the smartest comedy you've ever seen yeah. Yeah. so so I think that's the kind of stuff that where, where I think it's so important that, that voice is heard where he's genuinely an important voice in comedy but 
the stuff that I see, like Bo Burnham, I think is the greatest comedian in my generation because he does stuff that's that's really serious and sharp. But I don't know if um, I don't know if uh, I I think he's kind of dismissed by like he did such a great MTV show, and I mean, just people don't. Oh, he's no, there's so also, incredibly smart. He's incredibly smart, but there's also a, a sense of the fact that maybe we don't want this kind of content. Like, maybe there are young people who don't want in, important voices heard because just the just there's been so much lecturing that it's exhausting. Like, there's really... It's really exhausting to be lectured as a young person, and there's been so much of it. So I get sometimes when people are are just not which is why comedy is great because yeah, comedy, comedy is, great. In, is the nature of comedy is you you don't get a laugh unless people are engaged so you you cannot lecture to someone and have them laugh at the same time you need to have them you need to be facing the same direction even a politically interested even as a politically interested young person like i always found comedy to sort of move the needle more than like the dry stuff that i was watching like like john stewart had a lot more to do with informing my worldview than um, than any of the news networks and people uh, and, and and like people like uh, Bill Maher, who I never agreed with, but always respected the mode with which he um, yeah he, sort of he annoys me a lot, but yeah, I, really I, I, I continually watch him because he's a genius. He's one of the best. He's he's an important voice. Like there are so few important voices and like I respect his takes on things even though like his thing where he where he was talking about how dangerous Islam is like I thought I didn't agree with him necessarily but I respected him for taking a stand but the nature of his making that argument so clearly and concisely and not racistly not racistly is a really it's really good to find somebody who you don't agree with who has a clear line of argument because then you can figure out where you disagree there are guys who like my girlfriend's in love with Reza Aslan like completely in love. he's a public intellectual public Muslim intellectual who wrote a book on Jesus and there's a great interview with a woman from Fox News who just doesn't get it and he just destroys her it's like it's an absolute bloodbath he uh she challenges his right to write a book on Jesus as a Muslim and he's like um uh, he's like uh, and she says you need to you need to tell the public that you're a Muslim and he's like Lady, it's on the first page of my book. It's in every interview I've ever done. He's like, I'm a Muslim. And she's like, it would be like if a Christian wrote a book on Muhammad. He'd be like, no, it would be like if a Christian with two PhDs and a doctoral thesis on Muhammad wrote a book on Muhammad. It's amazing. But, um, but yeah, those, those voices that are slightly comedic in nature and kind of lighthearted, I think, are the ones that um, are the most resonant for me because... They understand that taking yourself so seriously is a really, uh, well, is also really because comedy uh, has to show it's working. What do you mean? So, a lecture or a political speech, uh, there's not necessarily a critical engagement with its own with its own structure. It just presents you with the final product. This is my I'm opinion. Not, this not, is my argument. I don't know what you're. I'm not clear on this. What do you mean? So, c- comedy needs yeah. to be deconstructive. You need to be Does taking really? things apart. Well, because otherwise you don't have the component parts to make a joke. I think that we're... I think a lot of what we do I don't is, mean, a, is aesthetic and... I don't and mean philosophically deconstructive. I mean, like, the nature of writing a joke. 
means that you have to critically engage with the pieces of the joke. You need to know what parts you're putting together. So you can't absorb a philosophy whole. You can't just be like straight down the line. Do you have an example? Uh, I think the the Colbert Report and John Stewart are very good examples of that. So the news presents the story. Yeah. And they present themselves as a neutral party presenting a story of facts. And then they'll give you two different experts arguing and the position of the news has to be neutral. Mm-hmm. There's a story by John Stewart or Stephen Colbert, like, because it's comedy. It can't Takes be neutral. Takes side, yeah, of course. Comedy does. But then it also examines its own side, where it stands in the, like, what its position is in that. It, it's, it's really self-aware, and it has to engage with the issue in a de- deconstructive way. It questions the story. What are the bits of the story? Why are you being told this story? Who's telling the story? Who are they and who are you? Mm-hmm. All of those things are entirely necessary for that comedy to work. Okay. The news doesn't have to tell you why they're telling you this story, why this story is interesting to you, who they are. They never tell you who they are. The news, a news anchor will never tell you what their position is. Yeah. Even if they're like Fox News and their position is fucking obvious. Yeah. Really, really biased. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a, it's a more, yeah, a more critically engaged way to to deal with ideas I think when you say comedy has to show its workings I I see a lot of comedy that's based on a false premise and uh, and I kind of enjoy a lot of those I, I kind of now guiltily enjoy a lot of that comedy because there are no stakes to it for me so I can so to, totally have it free of the truth so give me an example of that. Um, a lot of the uh, bits about guns or Bill Cosby or something dangerous. Like, Bill Cosby's now an... E- like, a lot, of, a lot of jokes about, like, sexual assaults, like, like celebrity sexual assault, they're easy targets because no one's going to... Um, you know, no one's going to actually challenge the... Uh, like, like they're you're obviously they're obviously in the right, and so in these people like Bill Cosby, in, it, until now it seems, uh, has escaped uh, justice in a very frustrating way. So, um, using comedy to sort of hold his feet to the fire as much is is uh, is really gratifying because it seemed like for a while it was the only way to uh, only way to hold him to task, but like. In terms of a false, in, in terms of a false prep, like, but there's still a little bit of guilt behind that because, you know, like, it looked like Kazu was going to escape justice, and even though everybody was on the same side, it looks like the the deck is stacked. If someone does a joke about the political system of the United States, it's vaguely depressing to me because everyone agree, everyone in the room agrees with you, but there's still no real life repercussion yeah there's no stakes in the game of of going after Bill Cosby yeah because and the venom with which people go after Bill Cosby is more is I think more uh, indicative of, of something else which is that Bill Cosby stands for a bunch of other men who have escaped yeah, that's justice true. and will escape justice and are escaping justice but you know I don't but and like, we're not going after them yeah obviously but um, I mean for a false premise like you know something silly like Uber versus 
you know, taxis or something like that, or or someone talking about like relationships, men are like this one or like this. I used to like roll my eyes, but now like just knowing that there's no truth in like men versus women. Like jokes in the sense that like everyone is different and everything is complicated. Like it's much easier to laugh at that knowing that it's like just bullshit and well, yeah, and there's that, a that, or that it's true along only one axis of truth. That there are always yeah. that you know, for example, I as an educated uh, white Jewish woman mm-hmm. would probably have more in common with you as an educated white Jewish man than I would with a woman from the slums of Nairobi. Yeah. And so men versus women is a completely nonsensical axis to apply there. And it's mm-hmm. much more about education and language and class and access to uh, certain kinds of culture yeah. that informed our worldviews. So I mean, I think so too. And to, by the way, to get back to sort of like youth culture, I think that it's really strange that um, that people don't that what people have chosen to engage with is really like um, is really juvenile and like uh, and really does celebrate like just one line of thinking and uh, it's hard to sort of be on this side of the um, and like by the way that juvenility that's not a word but whatever juvenility juvenility maybe maybe that sort of juvenility extends to the way that people like are letting other people talk. And so everyone's got access to this veneer of academia. So, but, like, people are still using it to inform this, like, really juvenile, like, like, uh, bro and lady bro culture. Do you know what I mean? Like, bro in terms of, like, lady bro is more what I'm thinking of at the moment, which is, like, yeah, slay queen. I'm just, like, I don't want to say, I've seen Hillary Clinton over the last few months like reduced to a series of memes and I'm like this is one of the great states and women of the 20th century 21st century who's done an incredible job who's been like Secretary of State and the most active First Lady of the second half of the 20th century again going yeah second half of the 20th century and so now like I just have this this woman who the people are like well can she dance and I'm like I don't give a fuck if Hillary Clinton can dance. I don't want to... I don't care as a young voter whether or not she can, like... Like, people are like, oh, she struggles to engage with young people. And I'm like, yeah, and the answer to that is not, like, a better Twitter presence. The answer to that is, like, for her to speak more to, like, young people issues and to, like... Yeah, what is your position on education, for example? Yeah, what's your position on student debt? What's your position uh, position on, like... Access to healthcare. Yeah, exactly. Access to healthcare. What's your position on like, just the general unemployment for young people, which is a big problem for us. Like, and I'm just unemployment. Yeah, especially in overeducation, we have we have we have an overeducated generation of people who are not, who a are not getting educated content, which is a smaller issue, and to a larger issue, like just can't find the jobs that we're qualified for. So, like, I want to know more about that than, like, whether, how Hillary comes... She's wooden on Ellen DeGeneres' show. I couldn't care less. But, like... I mean, it's, a, like, Bernie Sanders, who I want to vote for but can't. Um, uh, Why do you say that? Eh, it's just... There are a few, there are a few things that 
that elbow out, and I honestly don't know if Bernie's foreign policy... Like, I just think Hillary's got more foreign policy experience. I think she'd be a better leader for the country. I don't like her personally the way that I like Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders sort of strikes a soft spot for me, and, it's like, he engages me on a on an intellectual, young level. I think he really says a lot of the things that I think and and really feels like my kind of candidate. But I just think that Hillary Clinton would be a better leader for the United States. And um, Well, she certainly knows the system better. Yeah, although that system really frustrates me. I wonder if Bernie... I, I go back and forth on who I'd vote for because Bernie says that he's going to reform the system, but now I'm at the point where I just don't think anyone can reform the system. I think we're past helping. The question is whether you... Whether you think that by throwing Bernie Sanders in the mix, he's going to come up against a brick wall and become completely ineffectual? I know that we can't have a Republican candidate this year. Like, I would have voted for Mitt Romney in this election. Like, I would have voted for even John McCain, Sands, Sarah Palin in this election. Like, centrist Republicans who are really great and moderate and interesting. And instead, we've just got these few lunatics running around where, like... I can't believe, like, I'll hear about a candidate who was too conservative for me socially and um, and sort of, like, wavering on the, like, fiscal conservative side, like a guy like Paul Ryan or something like that, some, a guy who just doesn't touch a lot of bases for me. And, like, I can't believe that I'm like, oh, God, I really hope they throw him in the race because he's such a better candidate than Cruz. But, like, Cruz is... Completely mental. Oh, my God. It's like... Like seems genuinely homophobic and, and yeah, genuinely. Yeah, there's, there's these kind of the political animals who'll say what they, what they need to say, and you can see that they don't believe it. And then you can see people who are genuinely insane. I don't. I to don't the point know. You wouldn't trust them. I don't to make know what's worse. Yeah, I don't know what's worse. I don't know if Cruz is, if if it's if it's worse if he believes this stuff. I think it, I think it might be. I think it might be worse that if if Ted actually believes the horrible offensive shit that, that he does. I situation in microcosm at the moment where I have uh, I had a friend who had some mental illness issues and started saying some really aggressive things. I wonder where this is going to go. Things, yeah. uh, about me to me. Okay, yeah. And uh, I just was like, I was confronted with that of, does he believe these things or is he just saying them? If he's just saying them to get a reaction, that's horrifying and yeah. Machiavellian. But if he believes them, it's worse. Yeah. Because then there's somebody in this world who has a filter this, through which I'm a monster. And I think I the don't stakes like are that. higher in our scenario. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? Nothing. Okay. I'm just going to avoid the issue out. until it goes away. Yeah, you should write it out. That's one of those things that you can write out, actually. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't actually affect my life. We, there's no position in which he has power over me in this yeah, world. Yeah, obviously. So it's just it's a one way you can avoid it. But it was a real concern for me until I was like, meh. What's the what's the real world effect of this on me? Nothing. He's not going to be running the country, but uh, that isn't. It's an interesting one. Is it better to have somebody who is cynical and manipulative and and sociopathic? Because to be that cynical and manipulative about such intense and real issues is sociopathic, or it's, somebody who's genuinely off the fucking. It's wall. just so strange to me because as a like a conservative value is less government and fixing government. But all the conservative values that I seem to see, like in the Republican Party right now, are repressive. Yeah, well, they're ones that like try to prevent people from from gaining access to certain things instead of like getting money out of politics or like 
fixing a system that's just not serv- like like there's no question that there are people who aren't being served by by uh by the current by the way things are right now and so republicans at the moment like like it's 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 insane to me because i really think that Mitt Romney even though i didn't agree with him and i voted for Barack Obama he did seem to, and John McCain as well. They seem genuinely concerned with improving, improving systems. But I haven't heard Ted Cruz utter a word about getting money out of politics, or I haven't heard Donald Trump. Actually, that's not true. Trump's been very, very uh, vocal about it, but that's only because it serves his best self-interest. Like establishment Republicans um, uh, seem very much like I mentioned this thing in the Great Debate about corporate personhood which is the idea the Supreme Court passed that, co- that corporations have the same rights as people, and so restricting the right to spend money is restricting their freedom of speech. And that's absolutely insane. It's completely insane. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's a lunacy. And I was like, imagine money if is companies... Not speech. Yeah. Yeah, um, but, like that, but like these companies... And if corporates are peop- corporations are people, then we got to hold them account for the amount of... Uh, damage that they do psychological damage that they do yeah there's but that's the reason corporation exists is the limited liability of uh, you know it's insane yeah it's nuts my brother's a big conservative so it's really hard to uh, argue these points because they genuinely believe that like the people who are responsible for you know I think there are people who genuinely believe that uh, that people that are responsible for the problems in the United States are like you know, poor young people and and young gay people, and like, it's a it's a um, it's something that runs so counter to anything as as a millennial that that you'd vote for that to be a Republican supporter under the age of you know thirty five seems absolutely insane. And there are a bunch of active young Republicans. I think there are some. Uh, like, and I have some conservative values, like not socially, but definitely, definitely financially, and definitely like in terms of like less government involvement in our life. But like, yeah, it's interesting to me how both sides of politics, uh, at least vocally, more and more authoritarian. And I think it's yeah. because we have more access to the range of insanity that's out there, mm-hmm. and we. Can, yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, really, for me, that sort of I've got a libertarian bent, and then you think. Yeah, everybody does. Have, everyone. And then you the look at people, and then you go, "Oh God, maybe they can't be trusted." I don't know. I never know what to think anymore. About. Uh, I'm not apathetic. I, I feel comf- I feel really uncomfortable when people talk about political apathy in young people, especially Russell Brand encouraging young people not to vote or things like that. Like, that stuff makes me furious because. They're just total loss of voice and rights for, um, or at least in terms of our interests not being represented, comes down to the fact that we don't vote or spend as much money um, as older people do. And, and the idea that we're an entitled generation and the fact that we will cater to old voters and retired peoples is really, um, is really distasteful to me. And so... Like, yeah, I just don't, uh, but, but with all that said, like, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know how to vote. I don't know what to think about um, the, the candidates. I don't know what to think about the culture that reflects, our, reflects us back at ourselves. It's a very, um, it's a very hopeless situation. I have a theory. Yeah. That a lot this of... This is an idea for another science fiction book. 
Possibly. No, it's a, it's a, it's an argument for kings. Um, oh God. The return of kings. No, my theory is that a lot of the reason that capitalism worked as well as it did for as long as it did is because you had a hangover from feudalism, where there were morals and responsibilities that were built into hierarchies. So, you know, you had this kind of noblesse oblige to look after your employees and the employees had owed you loyalty and these that's kind very of systems. Conser- that's very conservative of you, by the way. <laughs> uh, and, and so I think that uh, now, when that hangover of, of feudalism is starting to wear off, capitalism in its barest bones, without any kind of philosophical or moral checks on it, is exposed to be quite a damaging and upsetting system. I still think it's the best one we've had so far in terms of less stabbing and murdering, at least uh, in first world countries. But yeah, I'm interested to see what happens as those lingering echoes of that heavy Christian and feudal morality go away, what capitalism is going to look like without any of that. And whether we'll replace it, because we clearly, like everyone, can feel it in their guts that that there is a moral wrong being perpetrated by. I rarely talk about capitalism because I just don't understand it. Huh. I just don't understand the, the capitalist system. But the argument for kings is that if you get a king, it's a roll of the dice. Mm. Could be a good man, could be a bad man. But our system now selects for ambitious compromises. I don't. I don't doubt that compromise is... I mean, I think that ideally compromise is something that should be valued. Like, um, I think... It's not a serious proposition, the king thing, by the way. No, 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 I know, I'm aware. (laughs) I'm not not that serious, or I'm just like, oh, I can't believe she's recommending a king. (laughs) Who Who would be your ideal king? Uh... I reckon a sort of a real old school sort of Viking style king for a year, lottery, like you drew a lottery and then you have a year of intensive training and then you're a king for the year and then you get killed. <laughs> you get killed. <laughs> the end of the year so that you've got no one, you know, kinging for their future. Oh God, I think people would really, really be unhappy with the last bit. I think <laughs> well, everything king, sounds good. Not killed, farmed out then. I like the idea that... Sent to a, a preserve of ex-kings, like where they put pedophiles. I like the idea that there should be a, a criteria for, for leadership in the United States, a certain amount of experience in, in certain areas. Because people are like, well, voters should need to prove their IQ or something like that, too. It's like, well, you don't need to prove your IQ to run. I can't remember who it was who had a really sweet little gag. I think it was Will Anderson, maybe, just of that... You shouldn't have an IQ test. You should just have voting be on the internet or something. Yeah, people who can't figure out how to work the internet don't deserve to vote. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure young people would love that. I'd yeah. be a fan. Um, uh, I've already voted on the internet twice today about um, uh, on online polls. But um, I wonder whether or not we'll ever have any candidates who who are okay with supporting something that's... Uh, I think the key is, 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 is only first term. Uh, I think there should only be one term as president. I think two terms is a step in the right direction away from the infinite ones that we had in the early part of the 20th century. But 
but I think uh, because it's really hard to unseat an incumbent and um, I think presidents who don't have to worry about getting elected again are far it's far easier for them to make decisions um, I just wonder why and here's another thing I want to get to this before we end uh, I wonder why there aren't more people who are catering to young voters in in the hopes of sort of having their support in 20 years because you know that's the key to any party is to be inc- to be inclusive now we have a very multicultural society in the United States so like Trump's lack of inclusion I think really threatens the future of the Republican Party that's Latino and African American and Muslim and and uh, and very diverse and gay they're, they're gay Republicans they're, you know there are these log cabin Republicans who are very you know um, who are who are really in favor of a lot of uh, policies that 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 are not you know obviously not socially conservative but definitely fiscally conservative so so yeah I'm just I'm just surprised that people aren't investing more in uh, in young people and I'm just wondering how that's gonna look how what the aesthetic of that is going to be politically and culturally especially culturally in 50 years like are we still gonna be like yeah slay queen you won't believe what this you know but this old woman on Medicaid, like it's. It'll um, be fascinating. It'll be fascinating to watch people. Like Dr. Dre's gonna be seventy in a few years. You know, like he's. It's unbelievable. When people talk about old people in their audiences being conservative, yeah, or not or being afraid of swear words, I just yeah. think old people now. If you've got someone who in, is in their fifties in your audience, they were growing up in the in the 60s and 70s yeah in the 70s now and towards the 80s like yeah. how are those the people who are going to be well in the 80s when, I don't think they're old yes I know what you mean like it's not that's not the world anymore that we live in mm-hmm. if you meet a lady who's in her 60s who hasn't heard the word fuck before you're meeting a very weird beast yeah that's right it's really it's really uh, I think though people get older and they get more and more angry with I think they just get frustrated with this, uh, with what we... I can see myself being, like, an angry old person already. It's a really weird thing, because, like, increasingly I agree with people who are older. And it's really strange, because, um, like, I listen to a lot of hip-hop, and I understand youth culture and indulge it as, like... Like, indulge the stuff that, that, like, gives it root. Like, I, like, I like... Like Fetty Wap and shit like that. Like that's kind of my, it's kind of like what I listen to. But it doesn't mean I think that's what the world should be. Yeah, or I don't, what the world is. Or like I also don't think that I also think that like people can only benefit from a more like um, uh, from like a from like a, a more interesting, less derivative um, uh, genre of you know. Of music and and uh, and art and comedy and TV and less so with movies. Movies tend to get made for a much wider audience, so you get much less shit in movies. But occasionally, you get you get something, you get a really bad dud or something hmm. like that. Um, Where can people find you online, Alex Edelman? Yeah, 
All right, I'm on Twitter, obviously, Alex underscore Edelman, and I'm on Instagram and Snapchat as the Alex Edelman, and uh, I'm on Facebook as Alex Edelman. I'm pretty much Alex Edelman based all across the internet. And what's your tour coming up? I've got a few weeks at the, this is the end of my Australia run, sadly. I've got a few weeks at the Soho Theatre in London, which should be a delight. Um, and I'm at, I'm in different places in the United States. Everything is on my website, which is alexedelmancomedy.com. And yeah, that's uh. Well, I'll be in the UK for the second half of the year. Oh, good. So I'll we'll see you there. Follow up on this when the elections happened. Oh God. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I'll see you soon. Thanks see for having you soon. me. Thanks.